me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And stand with me as we read the word of the Lord to us this morning. Verses 6 through 12. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, and producing a sound, they do not produce a distinction in tones. How will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then, I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be what be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Lord, I pray that we would seek with all our hearts, Lord, to be used for the building up of your church, that we would be strengthened together and used to glorify you. I pray this morning that our ears would hear your word and that our hearts would seek above all things to apply this to each and every moment of our day. Lord, help us to honor and glorify you with our lips as well as our actions. And Father, we pray this morning that your truth would be evident to us. Moved by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. I don't know about you, but oftentimes my kids come to me and start saying things. And the moment they start speaking, I realize they're not actually speaking English. They think they're speaking English. They think you should understand what they're saying, but in reality, they're speaking gibberish. I don't know, have any of you experienced that? Maybe a little bit? And if somebody else's kids come to you, it's very likely you will not understand what they're saying because as parents, we learn to understand what they're trying to say. But as when we're not their parents, we're just like, I don't know what you're saying. You need to talk to your parents and have them translate for you. We need an interpretation of that tongue. (laughs) So I was just thinking about that in this passage. Paul is trying to make the point that if in the gathered assembly we speak in tongues without interpretation, which... Remember he said at the end of verse 5, he says, unless he interprets that speaking in tongues is not as valuable in the gathered assembly unless there's interpretation. So now Paul is continuing 
to make this point, and his main point is really in verse 12. So let's start in verse 12 and go backwards. And you're probably like, Paul, you're beating a dead horse by now. Right? You talked about common good in, in chapter 12. You were constantly talking about our role in the body, each person providing to build up the church. We see that in chapter 13, that, that our love is what motivates us. And what does that love bring about? The building up of the church. And then here in the verse the first part of verse 14, he ends with, so that the church may receive edifying. You're like, Paul, I think they should have the clue by now. I feel like I do. Well, I don't, I don't, I think Paul has a reason. There's a deep inset belief that things are not necessarily for the edification of the church, but the building up of someone else, someone in the church, alone. And that, the spiritual man that they're seeking to be is, is different. So, at the end of verse 12, Paul is essentially boiling down what he's trying to say from verse 6 to verse 12 into one, you know, concentrated formula. So he says, So also you... Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts. This word zealous is actually comes from Greek. It's where we get our word zealot. One who is a zealot, a sold out believer in whatever you believe. Right? The original zealots were people who were willing to die for what they believed. Not necessarily... Christian zealots. There were Jewish zealots. I don't know if you've heard of the Maccabees. It was a group of Jewish, a group, Jewish family that fought to free Israel from the Greeks. And then they were put down when Rome came. And actually the apocryphal books, the Maccabees, is kind of the story of that that kingdom. But they were considered zealots. Or remember, you hear in one of the Gospels, the Simon the Zealot. I don't know if you remember that. But essentially, he was, a, he was opposed to Roman rule. He wanted God's rule of Israel. He wanted a self-sustained Israel. So a zealot is someone who has a, a vision for that they're willing to die for. And so when he uses this word to describe their desire, this word can also mean jealous. You're jealous for the spiritual gifts. You want these things. That is, he's not putting that down. But what he says, he clarifies, so if you want these things, then seek to abound for your edification. Is that what it says? I'm pretty sure that's what the message version says. Okay. I better not say that because I'm sure it doesn't. But, um, you know, my, my old man version definitely says that. 
Right? Isn't that what we have to fight against every day? The, the desire to be the primary person? But instead, he says, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And what I, I find so interesting here is when he says seek, he means the same idea of striving after. Like go after it with all you have. You're zealous, so seek this specifically. Be zealous for this specifically in your seeking for spiritual gifts. And when we seek to do this, we will abound, or the word can be translated excel over abundantly in the edification of the church. So, is our zealousness for spiritual gifts driven by a desire to build up the church? To build up God's kingdom? Or is it a desire to build up our kingdom? Have we placed ourselves under the rule and reign of Christ? Because it's easy to think, well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual man. Right? This is what the Corinthians are thinking. Well, I'm speaking in tongues, so I'm a super spiritual Christian in church. Not, not that, again, Paul is not debasing tongues. He's making clarification of how it should be used in the church when they're gathered together. But the Corinthians... Just think, well, because we speak in tongues, I'm a super spiritual man. I'm the, the most spiritual of the people of the church. So that's all they were seeking for. That's why I think this whole chapter is here. Not that it was wrong, but they forgot the reason that God gave the spiritual gifts. It wasn't so that someone could say, I'm spiritual. It was so that we could build up one another. And that's why God couples it with the gift of interpretation, whether it's the same person or not. Because I believe the Apostle Paul actually gives us an example in, in this passage, or not in this passage, but in chapter 14, of someone interpreting their own. So it may be the same person. It may be a different person. But in all these things, we should be seeking to abound for the edification of the church. So Paul uses, let's go back to verse 6, because that's an extremely important part of this teaching. So Paul says, but now. So in light of what he had just said, he decides to give us a bunch of rhetorical questions. They're questions to make a point, not questions to that he doesn't know the answer to. He knows the answer, but he's writing to them so that they think about what the answer is, so that they see the point that he's trying to make. So, he says, but now, brethren, if... Oh, why did he say if? He's giving them a hypothetical situation, right? When we say if, you know, 
For example, when I lived in Guatemala, I learned it was better to ask directions hypothetically than literally. Because if they didn't know, they felt like they had to give you an answer whether they knew the way or not. Because, well, you're American, and he expects me to know this, so I, I should know how to get to McDonald's, which I would guess they would all know how to get to McDonald's because it's pretty obvious where McDonald's is. But, you know, let, let's say you're trying to find a radio station, which I was one day, and I spent an entire day asking for directions, and every single person knew where it was. But every person sent me to a totally different place. And it was not the radio station I was looking for. Why? Because they felt like they had to do. So uh, when I met a friend, who had, or a, uh, actually a professor at Southern, who had lived in Ecuador for years, he sa- suggested, next time you ask questions, ask, ask it as though it's something you're going to do far in the future. If I were to happen to go to to want to go to this place, how would you get there? Because then it takes all the pressure off. It's not ex, it's not expedient that they tell you the the way if they don't know how, because this is a hypothetical situation. It's not actually a real situation, and so you would be amazed. How many people told me after that point, whenever I give them a hypothetical situation, that they didn't know how to get there? For the first time in Guatemalan history, not, not really, but the, it took the pressure off them. I think Paul is using this if that way. So, he's making it hypothetical But I think it's a real situation. So he says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, I think it's a conditional statement. Yes, this is a future conditional statement. But I think Paul realizes that they have elevated it so they want him to come speaking in tongues and not in understanding. Because that would mean that Paul is a super spiritual man in their view. You know, that, that would make him a person of the Spirit. That's, that seems to be what was going on here. So he says, so if, if, if I were to come to you speaking in tongues, what will I... So again, he's, he's asking a question. He's giving this hypothetical situation, which I believe was probably actually something that he expected to be a problem there. And then he asks us a question to make his point. What will I profit you unless I speak to you in what way? What way does he describe? Either by way of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Are these demonstrations of the Spirit? These, these things here? Yes, actually they are, right? These are speaking to issue, 
to the, the list that we see in chapter 12. But they have elevated speaking in tongues to the definition of a person of the Spirit that they would prefer him to come like that. And so he's saying, how does that profit you unless I actually come to you to speak by way of revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? It's interesting, this word revelation is actually the word apocalypsis. Sound familiar? It's where we get our word apocalypse from. But in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was popular literature called apocalyptic literature. And some of that is what's in the Apocrypha. But it was literature that pointed to the future. And most specifically, to the end. So, the book of Revelations. Do you know what its actual Greek name is? The Apocalypsis of John. So, if you look in a Greek Bible, it'll say that. The Revelation of John. We call it Revelations. But it's interesting that this type of, it's actually a genre of literature is speaking of something that's in the future that is going to happen, but most specifically to the end. And this was extremely popular from about 300 years before Christ up until this moment, that, that time, and even further in Jewish, the Jewish culture. And you see that actually uh, in the book of Jude, when Jude records, t- uses two stories from a- apocalyptic literature to make his point, because he's writing to Jews. Anyways, so Paul is referring here to some future words of knowledge or words of wisdom. It could it, really you could look at Revelation as a a p- type of prophecy. Some people, and I don't know that it makes a difference, will differentiate revelation and knowledge from prophecy and teaching. So they, they'll say, well, prophecy, uh, revelation and knowledge are the acts, what, what actually happens, and prophecy and teaching are the, the type of... So we could say that revelation is a result of prophecy and knowledge is a result of teaching. It's a good way of thinking. I don't think it makes a... A big difference for us. But the point is that Paul is saying, look, there there are ways that God has appointed by His Spirit to teach us. And they are far more helpful to you than if I just come speaking in tongues alone. They're much more profitable. Remember when Paul was talking about how If love was not the motive, it would be unprofitable or useless to do these things, to speak in tongues, to give to the poor, to have all knowledge, to have all faith. 
Yet here he says, what would actually profit us? Revelation in the form of prophecy or knowledge in the form of teaching or whatever, however God speaks to us, God has appointed in His perfect plan to give us through the gifts of the Spirit. You're like, okay, I get it, Paul. I get it. I'm good. Paul's not done. Paul likes to make, it sh- make sure we understand. So he moves on to another analogy in verse 7. He says, yet even lifeless things, lifeless things. Really, this word lifeless could be inanimate things. An object that has no life naturally within it. So he's, what's he referring to? Things that have no breath in them. Which I think might be a clue. Right? Do you remember what breath means? Or is translated as in Greek and Hebrew? It's the same word that's translated spirit in the New and Old and New Testament. Breath. When we have the breath of God in us, we are not lifeless anymore. Just like a flute and a harp. If you just leave your harp up on the side of your house, you know, okay, I just want to decorate my house. Does that harp have any intrinsic value if you don't play it? No, but when you begin to play a harp or a flute, what what do people say about that instrument? It comes to life, right? Kind of like a wind chime. You know, when it's not windy, it's just an ugly piece of metal tubes hanging. Well, some of them are nicely decorative, but it's just tubes hanging from your, your front porch. But man, when the wind starts to blow, it makes beautiful music. It comes to life. So even things without the Spirit or without breath, without life, like a harp or a flute, when it produces a sound or in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in tones or a distinction in sounds. Again, he's given us an example. Have you ever had a child just get a flute and just start blowing on it? Or, you know those little whistle things? Not like a a referee whistle, but... You know how the ones that you buy in a pack and it just, when they, they're just like, <gasps> and it's just like, I can't even make the sound. I mean, if Isaac was here, he could help me. Uh, Isaac Steele, he could, he could make the sounds for me. And we would all get annoyed after a while. But, and you have to take it from your kids and you're like, I'm going to find a burn pile for this because I don't want them to dig through the trash to find it. Okay, maybe we're the only ones that were giving that, given that as a birthday gift. Okay, we might have been at fault because we asked for musical instruments. Um, But they love that thing, though there's no distinction in sounds. Why? Because they like noise. But is it 
beautiful? No. To them it's fun, but it's it's not beautiful. So we have this lifeless flute or harp, and you're just playing it without any distinction of tone. So Paul says, how will it be known what is played on the flute or what is played on the harp? What's his point? This flute, what does it give when it's played with a distinction in tones and there's a melody and a harmony? What happens? What is produced? Music, right? Like I was listening, it's not a harper, a flute, well, kind of, a cello. I was uh, watching a video of Yo-Yo Ma, a very good celloist, and he was talking about just how much music moves you. Like, as a musician, he was answering questions about what it was like to play cello, or the cello specifically. And he, one of the questions was, well, when you play the cello, why do you make so much movement and that? And he's like, it's because I feel the music. I, I can't help but act that way. He's like, I have to be careful not to overdo it because actually when I am playing, I can actually get cello elbow. You know, you've, you've heard of tennis elbow. Well, cellists can actually hurt their, get cello elbow. And so they, they have to do stretches. He's like, I'm telling you, playing cello is like playing a sport. You know, it's, a, it's an intense whole body experience. The music touches you to the core. It doesn't just touch you. It, just does, it doesn't just go in your ears and you're like, oh, that sounds beautiful. No, music can transform the way you feel. Have you ever watched a movie and you hear this music and you're like, uh-oh, something's about to happen. Or you hear Bach's first and you're like, oh man, where are the mountains? Where are the, where are the beautiful streams? Those of you that know. You know, they always use this in films to just make you see the grandeur. Like it's like you're flying above the mountains and you're looking over in the clouds. It's always it's amazing how music has been is used to evoke emotion. So, but how would we know what is being played if if it's just noise? It's not distinction. We use the distinction to bring about life, to bring to life those feelings, those emotions in us. But if you don't have distinction, if there's no understanding of what's going on, then it might as well be lifeless, right? It's useless. You're like, okay, Paul, I'm, I'm getting it. I think I'm getting the message. Paul's not done. He really likes to ask questions. He really likes to give word pictures. So he says in verse 8, for, so in light of this, he's going to bring in another instrument. To, he's doubling down. He says, for, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, 
Who will prepare himself for battle? Think about that. What if the bugle just says, doot, doot. Is that going to produce anything? Or is he going, Okay, see, I'm, I need Dad's trumpet, but I uh, don't have it here. That's actually the word, it's the word trumpet that they're translating bugle. But just one sound, that doesn't evoke a response, right? doesn't evoke an, an understanding. But what's interesting is, when you play the right tones, what happens? Guys who were sound asleep wake up and they're like, uh-oh, i got to get my clothes on. I gotta, gotta. They didn't hear a single word, but they knew what to do. Right? Because the distinction of tones, the differences in sounds, made it clear, if you're not ready, you're going to die. It's time for war. That word battle is actually the word for war. It's time to go to war. And if you're not ready, you will be defeated. So, when lifeless things like a flute or harp are played, they, they, with a distinction in, in the sounds that are played, what does it do? It produces music. It has a purpose. And when a bugle is played with a distinction in sounds, if it's... I think that's the, uh, the call to arms. I can't remember. I should have given uh, Isaac a one to play over the, the loudspeakers. But, you know, you hear that sound, it's time for war or... The Kentucky Derby, right? They have the buglist play before. And that's the sign that the Derby's about to start. I mean, if you're out in the parking lot and you hear that, you're like, oh no, I wasted all my money and I'm not even inside yet. I better hurry. I've never been to the Kentucky Derby, but um, I'm sure, you know, isn't that terrible? 36 years in Kentucky and never been to a Kentucky Derby. Anyways. I guess horses weren't that big of a deal to me. Um, but it's just incredible that pictures that Paul is painting for us. Here, these are inanimate objects. They don't have life in them. But when they are breathed into with purpose, they bring about life and they speak to us distinctly. So in light of this, verse 9, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? What's Paul arguing here? He's arguing, look, God gave speaking in tongues for a purpose, but its purpose in the church is for the interpretation. It's not to make you look super spiritual, to make you be a spiritual man. God gave the spiritual gifts in the church for the edification of the church. So we as believers should be seeking those things. When we speak in the church, we should... 
be seeking to be understood by the hearers. It should be intelligible. And that's why I believe God has coupled speaking in tongues with interpretation. Just like Paul ended in verse 5, he's saying, you know, prophecy is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless, unless he interprets. Why is that? Because when he interprets, the hearers are called to battle. The battle cry goes out. The war begins. Or the emotions of the music move them. Right? These lifeless objects, when they are breathed into, remember, breathe, spirit, same word. When they are breathed into, they produce music or a, and a response. They have a purpose. No one would go to one of my children and say, Hope, play this instrument. And then be like, Oh, you're a virtuoso. You know why? Because my kids don't know how to play any instruments correctly yet. One day, some of them will, hopefully, maybe not be a virtuoso, but at least know how to play a few chords on the piano. But they won't say, oh, your music is beautiful. No. If they ask them to play piano, they're, they're going to be like, oh, that was a mistake. Because it's not evoking what they would hope. But when you hear someone play piano, I don't know if you've ever heard a classical pianist play, but it's pretty um, a beautiful thing to hear. Or any instrument played well should bring those things. Because it has a purpose. And so in the same way, so also for us, God has a purpose in speaking in tongues. And a purpose for us gathering together. And it's when we gather together, it is for the building up of the church. Not the building up of a single individual. Or to argue about who's more spiritual, who's the most spiritual person in SCA. Obviously it's me, so um, let's not argue about it. Oh, sorry, sorry. I let that slip out. No, it's not about where we are. It's how are we contributing to what God is doing in our church. He says, for just to, to make clear this, this idea that, you know, what, how will it be known what is spoken? He says, for you will be speaking into the air. It's useless. If you're not using tongues, speaking in tongues, in a proper way, you might as well just speak into the air because it's not bringing about the function for which God called it to do in the church. Again, I wanted to make it clear, we're talking here not about praying in tongues to the Lord in any way. I'm talking about Speaking in tongues with interpretation. And I believe that's the distinction that Paul is, has made clear. Because he does say when we speak in tongues, and at the verse, verse 2 of chapter 14, that we do not speak to men but to God. 
So it's not unfruitful for us, and it actually edifies us, he says at the end of it. Verse 4. And when we speak in a tongue, we edify ourselves. But the purpose of the gathered assembly is the edification of the whole, not of ourselves alone. So, when we are, again, getting to the point that's in verse 12, I, I, I let you in on the secret early. When we are striving and seeking to abound with zealousness to the church and spiritual gifts, we're doing it because we want to edify the church. So, Paul is saying, this does not edify the church when there's not interpretation. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak in tongues in church. It means that we should be praying, okay, Lord, I have this, but I don't have an interpretation, but I believe that you'll call someone to have interpretation or myself. It'll take a step of faith, and there may be a chance that the Lord tests you in that way. And when he gets to verse 10, he brings in another analogy. Paul does not want to leave this paragraph of this letter without them seeing the purpose of tongues in the church and how it is to operate. And he'll continue in chapter 12 to make this even more clear. So he says, There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world. There's so many. I mean, a multitude We can say, a great many languages. And no kind is without meaning. Or none are without meaning. Really, that's what the word no kind. None are without meaning. Or this word here is actually the word sound with the negative A in front. Without sound, without a purposeful meaning. So, if that's the truth, if this statement is true, Paul says, if then I do not know the meaning of the language... I will be, what? To the one who speaks, a barbarian. We use that word all the time, right? To describe people. Oh, they're such a barbarian. Not really. We, we use it to describe the Vikings or some barbaric activity. Cannibals or, or whatever. But in the time of the writing of this, barbarian was 
synonymous with foreigner. Someone who spoke a different language. So, if you want to test this out, those of you who actually have a southern accent, go to New York City. Find a cab driver and start talking to them. In English, okay? And you'll find out that on average, they're all going to guess you're not from there. You're a foreigner. You don't talk like we do. Have you ever had that happen? <laughs> we did when we moved out to Pea Ridge. They thought we were city slickers. Uh, you're not from around here, are you? Kind of that kind of, have you ever experienced that? Well, in New York City, it won't sound quite like that. I wish I could do a good New York accent. Uh, I was trying to think of how to do it. but you know, or, or how about you just take a, a, a flight across the pond to, to England and begin to talk to them. They're going to look at you and be like, you're not from around here, are you? Well, that's Australian, the wrong pond, wrong land. Uh, but they speak English, but they know that you're not from there because your mouth tells them otherwise. Well, they, they would actually understand a good portion of what you say. But if you go across the border to Mexico and start speaking to the majority of people in English, what are they going to do? They're going to look at you and go, Okay? That's Spanish for what? And you're going to be like, What? K what? K what? K what? And you're just going to be like talking to each other the same word. You're translating what they're saying, but you don't even know it because why? They're a foreigner and you're a foreigner. That's the point that Paul's making. Look, when, when you as a gathered assembly are, are speaking in a language that the other person doesn't understand, you are a barbarian. You're, you're as though a foreigner who doesn't understand. And what does he say? He says, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So if I, if I went to Brazil, for example and begin to talk to them in Spanish, they might understand a few words because there are some similarities. But before long, they'd be like, that's not the language we speak here. You're an outsider. And they would probably make fun of my Spanish. But, and then if I started to speak to them in English, they'd be like, I don't, you know, I don't know how to say I don't understand in uh, Portuguese. Maybe Joseph does. Um, that's a definite... Word. Whenever you go to a country, learn to say that. And then say, figure out how to say, how do you say this? That's the most important phrase you can learn in any language. How do I say this? Because from there, you can build a vocabulary to find out how to get to the bathroom and how to eat. That's all you need to know, you know? Or how to get to a bedroom <laughs> to get some sleep. Once you know how to get the essentials, then you'll be good. But... When I speak to someone in a language they do not understand, I am a foreigner. And when 
They speak to me in a language I do not understand. They're a foreigner to me. That's what Paul's saying. And even someone, uh, just an example from yesterday, we, were ha- we had a yard sale and this uh, Latino guy and a girl came and she spoke English, but he spoke no English. So she would just translate what I was saying and I was like, I'll just speak to him in Spanish. But Sometimes I would switch back to English when talking to her, and he'd be like, what did, she, what did he say? I'd be like, oh, yeah, he doesn't understand me, so I better go back to Spanish. So to him, I was a foreigner, and if I didn't know Spanish, there would have been no communication if she hadn't been there. To What was she doing? Interpreting, translating between us. What do you call someone who translates a conversation between two people? Interpreter. Why do you think God calls the one who interprets tongues? And in, that, That's the role. It's a language that the person who hears and even the person who speaks does not know. Yet it is being interpreted so that we can understand. So, what are we getting? What's the Paul's point? Paul's point is when we are seeking to abound for the edification of the church, then we should not speak in tongues unless interpretation is coming and a part of it. You say, well, how do you know that? I didn't read verse 13 this morning, but I want to read it right now. It says, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. That's the point Paul's making. He's saying, this is what we should be praying because we want to abound for the edification of the church as a whole. And this idea, this thought that we should be seeking to abound for the edification of the church, I believe, can go well beyond the spiritual gifts. How about in our daily lives, before we close? Do you think about husbands the way that you respond to your Christian wife? The way that you build her up? The way that you speak to her? That you encourage her? That you maybe even have to confront her? How are you seeking to abound? Wives, now your turn. How are you seeking to love your husband for the good of the church? Because what what happens when marriages fall apart? Does it just affect the couple and the family? No, it affects the entire church. So our relationships affect the whole. And I know this is not the point, and I'm not trying. I just, I, I, in reading this, I was encouraged to, to think outside of spiritual gifts alone. Because so often we think, well, that's okay, and then we don't apply it, this idea of abounding in the edification of the church. But when we build up one another, 
You know, sometimes my wife, you know, I might not be perfect. I know that shocks some of you. But she has to confront me. Like, why did you do that? Why did you raise your voice? Why did you, whatever. Why are you being selfish? It's really what it comes down to, right? She says she's never said that, but the silence. You don't always have to say that, but but how are we, how are you all as wives, how are you responding to your husband? Maybe it's a response to what he has said. Maybe he said something you needed to hear, but you did not want to hear it. Maybe God is calling you to be more submissive in an area, and you're saying, uh, my way's better, you know, I'll say yes, but I'm going to go do it anyways. It's not always easy to live the Christian life. If it was, everyone would be doing it. But how do we, as husbands and wives, respond to one another in the church? How are we building up one another throughout the week? How are we encouraging one another? Because the foundation of the church is Christ... And then families in Christ. We were talking to a guy yesterday, and I didn't realize the statistic was this high, but they say that when the father loves the Lord, that 92% of the time the family follows. 92%. And when the wife follows but the husband doesn't the Lord that it's like 20 or 30 percent of the time the the children follow the Lord it's incredible how when we are in the position that God has placed us in we've submitted ourselves to his reign as husbands and then wives you're submitting yourself to the position that God has you in you have a kingdom your husband has a kingdom y'all are in submission to the Lord and to wives in submission to your husbands. And, and then maybe you're a child here, you're not married yet, or you're a young child like mine, and you're saying, well, how do I do this? If you're a Christian, how do you respond to your mom and dad, to your parents, to your siblings? How are we building up one another? Are we going to battle together against the devil? Are we going to battle against each other? Do we seek to abound in the edification of the church? Are we causing more division with our parents because we don't want to do it their way? That doesn't mean that, and this is something for parents to think about, when your kids become Christians... They become brothers and sisters in Christ. We're raising, I pray, brothers and sisters in Christ. So we should be willing as parents to listen to our children as they grow in the Lord. Because they actually see our faults better than even our spouses do 
Because they see them when we get angry or when they aren't doing what we want to do. And it may be that God could use our children to open our eyes to areas of our lives that we thought we had under control. That God, we had wholly surrendered and God, and our children say, Dad, you, uh, you're not patient with me. Or, Mom, you, da-da-da-da. You're not patient with me. You know, whatever it may be. Now, I know that that's kind of a side note. It is something that I was thinking about as I was doing it. And, but as a whole, as a church, we should strive zealously for the spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. If you don't remember anything I said today, just read verse 12 ten times when you get home today and you'll have heard the message, I think. Because that is what Paul is saying, that we have a God has created a purpose for each spiritual gift and a way in which they should function in the church. And so when we're not using the spiritual gifts in the, the way that God has prescribed in His Word, we actually are doing something that's useless. Just like a musical instrument that is played without a distinction in tones. So we should seek as brothers and sisters in Christ to abound to one another's edification so that the church would be built up and founded in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, your word is true. We thank you that you give us spiritual gifts so that our church and churches all around the world could grow up and be built up I pray, Lord, that you would give each of us a zealous longing for spiritual gifts so that we can edify the church. Or that we would see a deficiency in a certain area of gifts and cry out, Lord, I don't care what value people place on this, but I know it's what our church needs and I desire to be used in that way. Lord, move, I pray, in our midst. Begin to work in our hearts, I pray. Thank you for this. Go with us today, Lord, and help us to live our lives daily, seeking to abound, not only in the spiritual gifts for the edification of the church, but in our actions and our words to edify our church in those that we live with daily. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.